Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. We'll pick up the reading in verse 11 and continue to verse 17. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the the word word of our God God will stand forever. forever. Amen. You may be seated. Before we consider this word from Luke chapter 7, let's once again go to the Lord our God in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice over the opportunity this day, on the Lord's day, to worship you. Strange as these circumstances are, unusual as it is, even now, Lord, for me to be before empty pews in large part, except for a few dear saints who are here. And Lord, to know that there are many who through the internet are this day entering into worship we would simply pray that by any means, through the power and strength of your Holy Spirit, use this moment in worship as a means by which to meet us powerfully and transformatively in the gospel. Because we take incredible comfort today knowing that you are not bound by space and time. You are not bound by the limits of technology. You, Lord, can overwhelm and work with and against anything to accomplish your will and purposes. And so, Lord, encourage and strengthen us now. Give us the hope of the gospel and awaken our hearts as we attend to this word from Luke chapter 7. Come and meet us and in a powerful way by your grace change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, one of the books that I picked up and was doing a little extra reading in because I found myself with a little extra time, believe it or not, uh, over the course of this week, was a book that I picked up a few months ago by an author named David White. The title of the book is entitled Consolations. There's a number of words in this particular book that he spends time uh, seeking to define, seeking to help us understand, to get into the roots of, to get into the meanings of, and one of those words was crisis. 
In that book and consolations around the word crisis, David White says that our lives are inescapably drawn to crisis. That all of us, in one way, shape, or form, are going to come to terms with the essential flaw of humanity. That there will be a storm, as he calls it, that comes from the outside, a power which will overwhelm us, of which we cannot control, and there will be a storm that rises up within us, a, a, a squall of concern and worry and anxiety when we realize that we are not the strongest force in the universe and that we are not in control of that which takes place around us. That, according to White, is the moment of crisis. Well, friends, if, if that is not a description of the moment in which we're in right now, I don't know what is a description of the moment in which we're in right now. Because every single one of us at a variety of levels are facing crisis. As we watch the news and we see more and more people getting sick globally, uh, nationally, within our own state, within our own county, within our own city of Franklin, as more and more people, folks that I know personally and I know folks that you know personally, are being affected by this disease from a health standpoint, our anxieties and worries naturally rise. But it's not simply the health concerns that have created that crisis. It's also the reality of a loss of wealth that's happening in our nation and in our world. Many of you have watched the stock market this week, and I've spoken to several who may be postponing retirement because of what's been taking place over the last several weeks. There's been diminished work hours among many of us. Some of us have even lost our jobs. I was speaking to a friend just yesterday who is a vice president of a company and had to cut 60 people from their company just yesterday. There's loss of health, there's loss of wealth, but for all of us at a variety of levels, there's loss of what I would call normalcy. Our routines have completely been obliterated. Uh, the initiatives and plans and goals that we had in place, the things that we had set our minds uh, to do that we thought would be accomplished are no longer being accomplished. Our favorite sporting events have disappeared. Concerts have been canceled. Conferences. I had hoped to be in England the end of April, the beginning of May. I will no longer be in England on that mission trip that was being planned. Loss of normalcy has upset many of us. And maybe even for a, quite a few of us, we feel the loss not simply of health and wealth and normalcy, but we feel the loss of freedom and it scares us. We see our government in ways that hasn't been typical, telling us to not go places and telling us what to do, restricting, putting parameters, all for good reasons and rationales. But it concerns us when we begin to think that our lives are so dramatically different than the way in which things used to be. And it's happened so quickly. And for many of us, it felt like it was just overnight. All of these losses, health and wealth and normalcy and freedom, point to the fact that we are a vulnerable people. We are a vulnerable people. One of the reasons that crisis is so hard is that it brings us to the point that Tony was making just a minute ago. The point that 
we have believed myths about ourselves and our world. <laughs> Namely, that we're in control. <laughs> Namely, that we run the show. That we get to call the shots. And when a crisis comes, what happens is we have to reckon with the truth about ourselves and the truth about this world. That we are not in control, but that our God is in control. And that we are at his mercy. That he is much stronger than us and we can't pretend any longer that we've got the world by the tail. Let me tell you, if you're feeling these things and experiencing these things like I am, I truly believe as we look into the pages of Scripture this morning, that's exactly where God wants us to be. And that's exactly where he wants us to stay. Not, not just be for a moment, but to stay in the recognition of our weakness of our neediness, of our vulnerability, and of his strength and control and power. He wants us to live there. Maybe you this week was having, were having the experience that I had. I just want all of this to pass on, go away, so that I can get back to my normal life of thinking I'm generally in control. That my plans work out, the things I put my mind to happen. I have a sense of stability to, to my life based upon the decisions that I make and the initiatives that I accomplish. I found myself multiple times this week going, I just want this to go away because my life doesn't have the same sense of stability that I wished or had known for many, many months and years seems to be passing in some ways. And then it was like the Lord, of course, not audibly, but confirming in his spirit through the truth of God's word saying, if you think that this time is just to pass by so that you can get back to feeling like you're in control in the normalcy of your own life, if you think that's what I'm really after right now, then you have completely misunderstood who I am. God is not interested in us going back to the lies that we've believed about ourselves with regards to control. He is about getting us to a place where we are utterly dependent upon him. We are utterly dependent upon him. Do you know what your loving father is doing right now? He is tearing out from all of our lives the things which we tend to rely on in this world so that all we have left is to trust in him. That's what he's doing. We know that because he reveals that to us right here in his word. That's really what we're going to spend our time looking at here in Luke chapter 7. The fact that he is calling us to trust wholly in him. And along those lines and with that focus in mind, I want to look at this passage with you in three ways this morning. I want you to see first the life-rending plight of the human condition. The life-rending plight of the human condition. And then I want you to see, secondly, the life-mending compassion of our Savior. The life-mending compassion of our Savior. And then I want you to see, thirdly, the life forever promise of the resurrection. The life forever promise of the resurrection. So let's start with this life-rending plight of the human condition. If you'll notice at the opening of our text in verse 11, Jesus is on the move. He's moving from the town of Capernaum, which you'll notice if you have your Bibles open, you can kind of look back to those verses. He's just come from Capernaum where he has performed another miracle on the behalf of a centurion. 
And now he has moved his, his presence, he's traveled to a little small town called Nain. Nain's about a day's journey from Capernaum and about six miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So this is an area that Jesus would have been familiar with. As Jesus draws near to the gate of the city of Nain, what happens is surprising. He comes upon a funeral procession of a young man. Now, if we are simply going to enter the text and know what's happening here in Luke chapter 7, this is a very dramatic scene in first century Middle Eastern context. Being at the city gate in the midst of a funeral procession, we're told it's a great crowd likely full of professional mourners, uh, likely um, music being played, shrieks of mourning and cries being given. It's a dramatic scene of sorrow. As all of this is unfolding, we're given a little bit of information about the circumstances that Jesus has happened upon as he enters into the city of Nain. Notice it there in verse 12. It's one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the scripture. We're told that the the man who has died is the only son of his mother, a widow. The only son of his mother, a widow. Now I just sat in that for just a few minutes this week and thought to myself, what an incredibly discouraging and despairing verse. Two things jumped out at me just reflecting on verse 12. First, the personal grief of this woman. Can you imagine the personal grief of this woman? She has already lost her dear husband. We don't know the circumstances from it. And she is now losing her only son. There's no indication in the text as to whether there is other grandchildren or extended family. We don't have windows into that. It might be that the very name of this family and the lineage and posterity of this family is completely being wiped out with the death of this young man. Whatever the circumstances, this is incredible grief. The likes of which maybe many of us, even as we reflect on this passage, recognize we've never quite experienced this intensity. But I want you to also see, not just the personal grief of this woman, what really struck me and why I ultimately landed on this text for this Sunday was the personal vulnerability that's exposed in this woman by the circumstances in which she finds herself. Circumstances she didn't choose. Circumstances we haven't chosen. The vulnerabilities of this woman. Remember, we're in the first century. This is a woman without a husband. This is a woman now without a son, which means that this is a woman without a protector. This is a woman whose livelihood in terms of provision has largely come through the men who have been in her life. And there are many avenues that are now cut off to her and potential exploitation and abuse that she might experience as a woman without a husband or a son as a protector. Reflecting on this text, one of the great commentators on the Gospel of Luke, Daryl Bach, he has two incredible volumes on the Gospel of Luke. He says it's as if this woman in this moment is essentially become an orphaned parent. That's the language he uses. I think it's very apt. When when we realize that 
this is the plight of this woman and the devastating circumstances of her human condition, her vulnerabilities and her grief. And we begin to look out at our own context and we realize our vulnerabilities are being exposed. Grief is wrecking this world in a whole number of different directions. We should be able to enter into this story and realize that the plight of the human condition, going back to what David White was speaking to us about crisis, is that we are coming to terms with the reality about who we are, the desperateness of our condition, and our neediness for a Savior. Do you see the life-rending expression of this human plight gives way to our second point, the life-mending compassion of our Savior. That's really what I want to focus on in this text, the life-mending compassion of our Savior. And I want you to see his compassion in, in four ways. I, I want to sort of slow the text down a little bit and, and sort of slow walk it uh, so that you can see Jesus's deep and profound compassion here. I want you to see, number one, his life-mending compassion comes that he, because he has eyes for the hurting. He has eyes for the hurting. N- notice the way that the text Uh, puts it here in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her. Now that would be be language that you might just run past in the text, but it just jumped out at me this week that the Lord saw her. And you might think to yourself, well, yeah, of course. I mean, he he had decent vision well enough to behold her. That's not the point of the text. In every circumstance leading up to this moment in the Gospel of Luke, you know what it is that we have found? It has been people who have come to Jesus to solicit help. They've been requesting help. But at this point, this woman unsoliciting of Jesus, not even knowing who Jesus is, he's a visitor, a stranger from out of town, entering into Nain right in the midst of her funeral procession. But it's Jesus who takes the initiative and lays his eyes on her. He sees the hurting Now, maybe you've heard the phrase, we all see what it is that we want to see. We all see what it is that we we want to see. Uh, That phrase, used very regular by psychologists, sociologists, and others, is a phrase that's meant to say, we see the things that we are wanting to look for. The things that we're poised um, to be interested in. Um, psychologists call it motivated perception, that um, we, we go towards something with a desire to see a particular thing. The fact is that many of us are very blind to the needs which are around us, to the, to the people that are hurting, to the things that are going on, to, to, the, to the needs that the Lord makes known to us. Sometimes we we willfully choose to be blind to those things. Like we catch them out of the corner of our eyes and we, we look away. Or we know the need of someone, but we decide to go a different direction in the conversation. Or, or we get a request and we know someone wants more than what they're asking for, but we don't really want to get involved in the mess of it. And our eyes are willfully choosing going in a direction. Or we're blinded to the things that are before her or before us. What we see in this text is that Jesus saw her. Why did he see her? Because he was on mission. He saw her because he was on mission. He had motivated perception. What what was he looking for? 
He had come to seek and to save the lost. That's why he had come. He had come for people who are hurting. He had come for people who are needy. He had come for people who are vulnerable. He had come for people who are desperate. He came to seek and to save the lost. He wanted to redeem a people who could not redeem themselves, who in their essential flaw and the crisis of their eternal reality, he had come to resolve it. And in the midst of this woman's pitiable condition, the Lord Jesus Christ sees her. And it really raises a question, what is it that you're seeing right now? What is it that you're seeing? What is it that's catching your attention? Uh, it might be when you're watching the scene unfold in Italy and you see the, the, the gurneys of suffering and you, you hear of people affected in our own community and you see the ravages that your heart is broken and your heart moves towards compassion. I pray that that's the case. I pray that you have eyes to see. But it could be that you've been primarily concerned about you through this whole crisis. What about me? What's going to happen to me? How, how, how's this going to go for me? And it could be that you have been primarily concerned, not with eyes for the hurting, but with eyes for self. And part of what the Lord Jesus Christ is showing us here is that the heart of Christ is one who seeks out visually, with perception, with insight for those who are hurting because Jesus' mission is our mission. We are to seek and to save those who are lost. But I want you to see, secondly, this heart-mending compassion of Jesus doesn't just have eyes for those who are hurting. Secondly, he was moved in heart. He was moved in heart. You see, sometimes we see and we don't care, right? That's the sad plight of the brokenness of, of our condition. We're sometimes like the Levite who passes on the other side in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We just, we just decide, oh, I don't want to look that direction. I'm not moved in heart. But what's fascinating about this passage is we're told Jesus had compassion on her. That's the language. He had compassion on her. I actually prefer and really like the, the NIV's translation of that word compassion. It actually says that his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. It's a great translation because the, Luke is choosing a term that literally means his, his visceral gut reaction, his emotional overwhelming pity and love for this woman is having a physical effect on him. It's having a physical effect on him. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've been in dire straits and you've seen poverty unlike the human condition should never have. Or you've been in situations of tremendous suffering and you've been there for relief and you find yourself getting sick, like physically being affected by your love and desire to care for those who are suffering. That's the picture here of Jesus with regards to his compassion. He hurt with her. He didn't just see her. He entered into her condition. He became, as it were, the pain and suffering that she was experiencing. Here's the question I want to ask for us as a congregation. As we walk through this crisis together, what is it that's making your stomach turn inside out? What is it that's having a physical effect on you? Is it watching the stock market go down and your 401k? Is it your loss of routine, your, your sense of control? Is that what 
brings you great concern? Loss of freedoms, not being able to go and do? Or is it compassion and care for those who are in need? Is, is it a desire to say, I so longingly want to pray for, care for, in any way that I can, creatively, at the strange season which the Lord has us in, because my heart is moved towards the pain of others. Jesus sees her. He's moved in compassion and in heart towards her. But thirdly, he extends words of promises to her. He extends words of promises to her. We, we often start here, don't we, in terms of the demonstration of our care. It starts with words. And, and Jesus here, the first um, expressive demonstration of his compassion is with three words that he speaks to this woman. He says to her, do not weep. Do not weep. Now, as I first read those words, it may hit, hit you like it hit me. I thought, well, uh, is that really very compassionate? Uh, do not weep. It'd be easy to kind of hear him say, they're there. Um, keep, 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 a, keep your chin up. Look on the bright side of this. It's, it's, it's going to be okay in the end. It'd be easy to kind of hear him saying uh, empty cliches like that. Almost the kind of words that you may have received in a time of suffering that hurt more than help. It could sort of be, be read in that way. And I think if you read it that way, of course, you're completely mishearing Jesus. The, those words, do not weep, are directing this woman's heart to who Jesus is and the promise of what he has come to fulfill. You see, before her right now is the reason why all tears are eventually going to be wiped away. Jesus is the reason that all tears are going to be wiped away. He is ultimately going to bring all things to right. When he says to her, do not weep, he is pointing to her towards the promise and the reality of the truth. It's as if he is saying, woman, if, I, if you knew who it was that said to you, do not weep, your tears would immediately stop. For I'm the reason that all tears are to be wiped away and I'm about to prove to you that your tears should dry up. Because that's exactly what he does in this text. He doesn't just speak words of comfort. He begins now, fourthly, to relieve her sorrow and to restore what it is she's lost. That's how he acts towards her here. Can you imagine it? Jesus, good as a stranger, walking into this city of Nain, inserts himself into the center of the drama, and notice what he does. He comes up, and he comes to restore this this young son who has died, and he does something that's quite remarkable. He comes up and we're told, notice, he touches the beer. That's what it says. He touches the coffin in the midst of this procession. This stranger, Jesus, comes up, touches the coffin, and we're told that those who are pushing it along, the bearers, they stand still. Well, you better believe they did. Yeah, they stood still. You know why they stood still? Because this is ceremonially unclean, what Jesus has done. He is just engaged and encountered in a circumstance that would bring ceremonial uncleanness to him. And a hush, a silence comes over those who are around him. Now, obviously, this touch that Jesus extends here is the kind of touch 
that is the very focus of the compassion of Jesus. Do you see, his compassion is not merely in words, it's not merely in sight, it's not merely in feeling, but it is in pushing back the effects of the curse. That's what we see Jesus doing here. As he touches this spear and as he speaks to this young man, arise, and we see that this young man leans up and he begins to speak and he is resurrected, we begin to see that Jesus is responding to this suffering and this sorrow and this loss in the way that this woman, in the way that all of us need, someone who is more powerful than our crisis. More powerful than our crisis. When the storm is overwhelming us from the outside and there's a storm welling up from us with inside, there's someone who walks on the water. And calms the seas with one word from his lips. And the winds go silent. Because all of creation obeys his command. That's who Jesus is here. Jesus, when he comes to her and says, do not weep. He says, woman, I'm going to dry those tears. And that's partly what you, you always want to see, don't you? You want to enter the text at this point. I don't know. As one commentator was querying this week, who do you look at in this moment? Do you look at the young man who's just <laughs> risen from the dead and go, really? Did this just happen? Or do you look at Jesus who they're trying to get to know, who is this man who just raised him? And I don't know. I think you look at both, but I think you definitely take a glance at that woman. Because those tears that were sorrows and sadness just turned into tears that were joy. Jesus is showing us the picture of, what the, very, of the, what the gospel does. The power of the gospel here. It turns our mourning into dancing. This funeral procession became, as it were, a wedding party. It came, as it were, a new birth date for the life of this young man and for this family. And what we're seeing in the midst of this, this life-mending compassion in the light of life-rending human condition is we're seeing life forever promised in the resurrection. Life forever promised in the resurrection. You see, the people knew this. Notice in verse 16, notice their response. Fear, it says, seized them all. They glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now, you may read that and think to yourself, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. God's visited his people, great things have happened here. No, no, no. These people have a prophetic memory. They have a prophetic memory. What do I mean by that? They know that they've seen this miracle before. No, not personally, but in the pages of Scripture. There was a man by the name of Elijah who in 1 Kings 17 went and visited the widow at Zarephath. That's right, a woman who had lost her husband. A woman who was at the end of her resources. She had just a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour that was left. She was going to make a final meal for her and her son, and they were both going to die. Total vulnerability, total desperateness, resources at every level running out. And what do we see Jesus do in the midst of that? Well, Jesus, through the power of Elijah, God, through his prophet, this recognizing redemptive and resurrective power displayed even in the Old Testament 
Elijah lays on that young man three times after he dies, and that young man comes back to life. And we're told in the book of Malachi that when the Messiah comes, someone like Elijah is going to come. Someone in the spirit of Elijah is going to come. And what do we see here in this passage? But someone in the spirit of Elijah. The, The display of power, prophetic power comes. And these people who haven't heard from God in 400 years now know through Jesus Christ that the messianic hope has once again dawned upon his people. They recognize God has come. Isn't it remarkable that when John the Baptist, who was one of the closest confidants of the Lord Jesus Christ in his days upon the earth, that John sent a couple of his disciples when he was questioning whether or not Jesus was the Messiah and His disciples came to Jesus and said, Hey, tell us, should we be looking for someone else or are you the Messiah? And do you remember what Jesus said? You can read it in Matthew chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. When Jesus says those words in Matthew chapter 11 to assure John, he's saying, I want you to know wherever it is that I have gone, the effects of the curse have been pushed back and overcome. That if you're wondering who I am, I am the resurrection and I am the life. I am the one in whom you should set all of your hopes You see, this story at the end of the day is really a standoff between life and death. It's a standoff between life and death. And what we see is life wins. But we see, friends, it's not just an inspiring story to say, hey, we're going to be strong and get through this. Let's let's do this. We're all in this together. It's, It's not a pep talk. It's not just an inspiring story. Luke is telling us that the only way life is found is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if your life is built in anything else, it's going to feel like sinking sand. And the reason it's going to feel like sinking sand is because it is sinking sand. Jesus comes and he is to us a rock. A a rock that the stock market can't move. That the coronavirus can't move. He, He is the kind of rock that so assures our soul of where life can really be found and the hope for resurrection and eternity that we can say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Do you feel the steely resolve in the Apostle Paul there? That's the resolve that we're being called to this morning, to find our life and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what an amazing portrait we're given? Elijah, a prophet, Raising the son of a widow. Jesus raising the son of a widow. And in just a handful of days from this passage in Luke chapter 7, do you know what Jesus is going to be? The son who was raised from the dead. 
by virtue of a mother who was likely a widow. Where no mention of Joseph is there. A woman who on the cross, as Jesus looked out, said to John, the apostle, Behold your mother, and to his mother behold your son. As if to take care of her because he didn't want her not taken care of. Like the woman here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus actually becomes the son of the widow who is raised. And it's why when he is raised... We're told we should never seek the living among the dead because Jesus Christ is the living one and today he is ruling and reigning on high. Today he lives to make intercession for us as his people. And no matter what is happening in your life or what happens in the weeks to come, friends, we have no idea how, how difficult, how devastating the circumstances might come. We have no idea. What's going to happen in our days? But here's what we need to know. Are you hurting? Jesus sees you. Are you needy? Jesus' compassion is being poured out for you. Do you are you listening to the words of the 24-7 newsreel? Jesus has promises of truth that are far beyond the news. Are you afraid of death? Are you concerned for your life? Jesus is the resurrection and the life for you. That's what this passage is teaching you. And it's calling us in Christ Jesus to now become a people who walk by that light and who live by that light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's today take heart and recognize that Christ indeed is our only hope. That the life-rending reality of the human condition has been mended through the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live now with the forever promise of the resurrection. We have nothing to fear. There is nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Toward that end, let's set our hope and our attention. And let's focus to follow Christ and to seek Him in the way that He has sought us. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, we rejoice over this word knowing that it is true. It is more true than anything we've heard this week regarding what's going to happen or take place. It's more true than the fears that whisper right now in our minds. Give us the eye of faith. Give us the strength to walk by the power of this glorious gospel. Take care of us, Jesus. Walk with us and be patient with us in our sufferings and in our trials. Strengthen us, those who are afraid. Encourage us, those who are depressed. Steer us towards you, those who are looking to be relied upon the things of the world. And let us find a strong place in which to stand. Let us find all of our life in the name of Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.